Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Webber. Today, I'm going to be having a stimulating conversation with Bertine Crevacour-West from Westbridge Solutions. She is a wonderful conflict resolution strategist. She's also an Amazon number one best-selling author and an award-nominated podcasting host um, from Atlanta. Um, And today we are going to be exploring global fluency, cultural competency, diversity, and a range of other interesting conversation topics. So without further ado, here's Bertine. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Webber. And today I am... um, I'm really excited about my guest today. We've been been talking for far too long in the green room. Um, it's one of those things every time we should press record now, but let's just just continue exploring this topic a little bit further. So um, I know it's going to be a really interesting hour or so. Um, Berthine, um, how do I pronounce your surname? That's something we didn't get to in green. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thank you so much, Brenton, for having me on the show today. I, too, have been super excited to be here, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation. So hello, everybody listening out there. My name is Bertine Crevacore-West, and I'm just thrilled to be here with you guys today. Well, first of all, thank you. Now I know how to say your name correctly. I'm sorry that I've been calling you Bertine for the last 30 minutes while we've been There's an H in it. Blame the French. Okay, anyway, we, we know each other now as the other beast. You're the main beast and the other beast. <laughs> so you're, you're, a, you're a conflict resolution strategist and a, you do all sorts of services at Westbridge, um, at your company. And um, I'd love to know a little bit more about Westbridge Solutions. The stuff that you do sounds fascinating, especially I think we'll probably get into the conflict um, side of things as well. Not you and I won't be having a conflict, but we'll <laughs> No, no, not at all us. But thank you um, for that opportunity. So Westbridge Solutions is uh, a learning and development company, and I am a conflict resolution strategist, amongst other things, uh, including a podcast host and an author. Having said that, I believe that knowledge and learning can be transformational. And so my goal was to help people resolve conflicts. And I felt that conflicts arise from uh, two things, or at least one of two things. One, um, an information gap, right? Not knowing how to do something. So that's where the soft skills, corporate training part of our company fits in. The other has to do with a lack of understanding about something or someone. And that's where the diversity, equity, and inclusion components fit in. So we'll have our cultural competence training. So sometimes we're able to marry the two because let's say um, you are now working with um, a remote, well, especially now in today's day, right? We could be working with a remote team and that team can be comprised of people from all over the globe. So now we're tasked with working from a digital platform, which some people might not be familiar with. So that is a skills gap that we have to fill. And the other is learning how to communicate with people that not only may have um, a different language from us as their primary language, but cultural differences as well. So that is where the cultural competence part fits in. And so we customize our programs depending upon the needs of our clients. So this is how sometimes, a lot of times, we end up marrying 
the soft skills and the cultural competence skills together to create comprehensive packages for them that address not only um, their skills gaps, but their cultural competency gaps as well. And um, I have to say, it's the joy of my life to be able to do this kind of work. And essentially, um, our slogan is empowering professionals for success. But I do believe um, we are empowering individuals, teams, organizations, um, not only to be successful, but to engage in conversations and expand relationships. Excellent. And um, Global Fluency is your podcast. And of course, this is all so important to diversity and understanding it. Where do you see the biggest challenge? It's such an important time for you to be doing what you're doing at the moment. So, so, so tell me more about the values that it's bringing to these companies that are starting to really embrace um, diversity and inclusion. Well, I will say this, uh, the biggest value is for, well, I'll preface this by saying diversity is good for business, right? So if you are operating um, in a company or from a company that does not embrace the concept of diversity and, and truly what it means, right? It's more than just different faces. It's different ability levels, different socioeconomic classes, different um ages, different sexual orientations, different sexual identities, which are very different concepts, um, just a variety of things. Diversity is filled with so many different components. If we are not already intentionally and actively engaged in the acceptance of diversity, um, then your company cannot be a successful one because your, your employees will not be able to show up as their authentic selves. So if you fill just the face gap, what I like to call um, just different looking faces, that's not actually diversity because diversity is true diversity is comprised of equity and inclusion. And if you don't have those three things, your employees are showing up as, as caricatures of their real selves. So that brings me to the next part that's very important. First, accepting diversity, as we said, but then showing up as your authentic self. Because when your employees show up as their authentic selves, they are more in line with the, the vision and the mission of your organization, right? And this means they're going to work harder because they feel heard and appreciated. So what happens when they work harder? When they work harder, they're more productive. When they're more productive, the company makes more money. When the company makes more money, it can then in turn do more for other communities that it serves, do more for its clients, and do more for its employees. So it is really a beautiful cycle that can be achieved, but it can't be unless you first accept diversity. It seems like a challenge in today's world. Because it seems like everybody is being, you know, the media is and, and politics seem to be pushing us more and more into boxes and um, it seems to be far more, you know, that we're in the, in the shame, shaming culture and yeah. I, surely I've always thought that business needs to be at the forefront of driving society, really, and yet it, it is often a place where, um, I don't know, I think some business people think that they can leave their ethics at the door when it comes to business. They can kind of, you know, they can, they can operate in a, a, a more of a, a loose moral way when they're um, in the business. Like if, if their kids knew some of the decisions that they were making and the effects that it was having on human beings that were involved in, in their, their organisations, I think they'd be very shocked. So how, how, do, we, like how, do, we, how do we make people realise that... that let me let me reframe that. Actually, there was a there was an article in the FT because um, and it was all about in the pandemic. Leaders have realised that 
um, treating staff well, listening to them and acting on what they hear is actually really good for productivity. And they said that's quite a radical idea. Now, to me, that seems a fairly common sense idea, as does surely diversity. Is a, it, it's, it's common sense that in a, in a diverse world, we, we, sh- we should be embracing the differences and, and filling our organisations to, to, to represent that diversity. See, Brenton, what I love about that is that you said the should, right? That's the operative word, right? It should be common sense. We should be doing it. But what I've discovered along the way is that although we should, not everyone knows how, right? So this is where it's really important to have two things happen. One, for people like myself that have learned how, right? Because we all have to learn. So people like myself that have learned how have to now make it intentional to show other people how, but in showing them how, we have to we have to do away with their fears. And their fears are of being called racist. Their fears are of being called sexist. Their fears are of being called ageist, right? And so we have to create psychological safety for them. And that psychological safety starts with simple things, right? Um, I always say this, I'll backtrack a little. That psychological safety for me um, as a trainer means understanding and creating a space where I'm not going to judge other people, but I do expect a level of respect, right? So I tell people, um, there's nothing you can say here that will offend me because I see it all as an exercise um, to get to the deeper heart of the issue at hand, right? So we can get to the other side together. So I believe in leading from within. And that means I'm not going to be behind you telling you go that way. And I'm not going to be in front of you saying, follow me. I'm going to be in the trenches with you because I'm going through this with you as well. So what that would require, and, and also I think that's that's servant leadership as well. So what that would require on, on my part would be to not be easily offended. Like I can't get upset if somebody says something that I don't like. So I, in my professional capacity, um, remove the ability for me to be triggered, right? So you kind of have to split yourself a little bit and realize that people aren't doing it to to be mean. They're not malintended people, but this is what they grew up hearing and knowing. And so what we, our parents are our first teachers. So what we saw them do, you know, even though the times may change, the ideas aren't changing. So how then do I show someone that they are safe in this space with me, that they can say, how they truly feel. So I tend to share um, a story of failure. I ask everybody, when was a time where you failed at something? Because we all have that in common, right? So mine was learning how to ride a bike. I couldn't ride a bike appropriately until I was 12 years old. I kept crashing into this one fence. And I know Phil knows this story, just crashing into this one fence. And finally, when I got to the other side of that fence, I was so happy and I rode for a few more moments and then I crashed into another fence. And that was, you know, that was a really humbling moment for me because it it kind of set the course for life, knowing that, you know, prepare for the challenges, right? But just because you're through one doesn't mean another one won't be there, right? So it it allowed me to to stay humble, if you will. Um, And so another thing that I think we tend to do here, um, particularly here in America, is cancel culture. And I think when you do that, you really run the risk of not only doing someone else harm, but yourself harm, because now you're preventing knowledge from entering into your space, right? And so I'll give you an example. 
um, in the morning, I listen to a conservative uh, radio station. And at night, I watch liberal news. Now, um, I'm also a political science adjunct professor because I love political history. And I want to make sure that everyone votes and understands how the American political system works. But I make sure not to tell my class, my political party. I make sure um, to always teach them uh, from a very objective perspective, as I do with companies that I train. I make sure, and that's not easy. That's just the right choice, right? Um, no one ever says the right choice was the easy choice, right? Like, I think it takes work to be happy. That's a choice that you make, right? It's much easier to be negative and criticize everything. So, you know, these, these choices are hard. Um, I don't tell students anything about my political beliefs uh, until class has ended for the semester, for the term. And then if they ask me, I share it with them. But um, I also know it's important to have people around you that disagree with you. Um, I came from a family of many siblings. I have uh, six brothers and sisters, and wow. we discuss and argue. Yeah, <laughs> we discuss and argue about politics. We got, I've got four kids, and I think it's crazy busy. Seven is a uh, seven is a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> but it's wonderful when you're adults, in particular. I think I because bet. you know. You, you have this bond and love for each other, but you can sit there and we, I remember, um, and with my brothers in particular, uh, my sisters are the eldest and, and they're more conservative and I came after um, most of my brothers and I have little one after me, but um, I am more like the boys than I am like the girls. So the girls are very demure and, you know, and I'm on the other side of it, like yelling at the TV over a football match with my brothers. And that's, that's real football, not American football, but that's good to hear. Phil, our producer will be pleased to hear that as well. I know he will. <laughs> but at the same time, we can argue about politics, um, be it Haitian politics, because my family hails originally from Haiti. And so be it Haitian politics, American politics. And, you know, I do not agree with them sometimes, and that's okay. And they were the basis for my first book, Global Fluency. Well, my second book, Global Fluency. And so... I think it's important to not cancel people's opinions out um, because when you do that, you run the risk of not only limiting the information that helps you build up, you know, a foundation of true knowledge seeking and gathering, but you run the risk of harming your own rights in the long run. Because if I cancel someone, can't someone cancel me? And what kind of world would yeah. that be? Well, it, seems, yeah. it seems like... That cancel culture, it's almost the, the, the flip side of the same coin of what they're, they're of, of what cancel culture is railing against. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you talk, uh, interestingly, you talked about the, the, the reaction to it. There's, I, I believe, or, and I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but um, about a year ago, I think I was reading an article about the effect that the Me Too movement has had on... Um, female recruitment, yep. and it's reduced. It's it's reduced it clearly. The Me Too movement had to happen, and in some way, shape, or form, those men need, needed to be um, brought to um, brought to justice for, for what happened. And it has definitely raised. I think it's it will have no doubt had some really positive effects. Um, but the the effect on recruitment has been negative because there's been leaders in in, in you know in the Forbes 500 who are scared of um being involved in a potential suit which is it's a 
have been listening to conversations at our house because my husband and I, we continuously have this conversation. I feel like he should be a guest with me, but. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm looking forward to being on your show. I really am. So, yeah. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. It's it's really crazy to me because, like you said, it's this it's the it's two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, the Me Too movement was inevitable, right? Should have been inevitable, right? Is inevitable. But on the flip side, now you've got people who are making accusations against other people that may or may not be true. And one of the the cases I like to look at um, is Aziz Ansari. Um, and I heard about his case, that gave me pause um, because yes, you know, women should be heard, women should be believed, but I think people should be believed and people should be believed based on facts. And and I am I am not one to just blindly say yes to somebody to to whatever it is they may say. I, I do I have an analytical nature. I do have an analytical mind. So um, you know, even a friend not too long ago, she was like, oh, I think these chlorine-based tablets would be great for the pandemic. And this is an intelligent person. And I of me was like, why do you feel that is? I didn't come at her like, that's ridiculous, you know, but I said, well, that is because I, I kind of want you to talk yourself through it <laughs> so I can understand the rationale, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that this is what can happen. And in the American system right now, as it stands, um, I do feel, okay, I'll give you an example. The way that I teach my political science students is um, I go against the grain. I inject cultural competency into political science because I feel that like it's been missing. And thus far, um, we've been taught to believe that the political spectrum is a straight line, right? On one side, you have Democrats. On one side, you have Republicans, or or rather, you have liberals and conservatives, right? And they're broken down into Republicans, Democrats, uh, libertarians, independents, et cetera. But my belief of the of the political system here in the United States is more of a bell-shaped curve, because most people, if you think about it, are in the center. Now, that may be a bit more moderate Republican, a bit more conservative Democrat, but they are in the center. And when you look at the opposite ends of that bell curve, they're closer together, right? And we can liken that to um, the Tea Party. We can liken that to Antifa. We can liken that to, you know, the hardcore right. You know, we can, they have more in common than, than they don't. And the only difference is the word, the words I should are the words that they use. So if I just change the words out, it's the same thing. I mean, and when you break it down, like that's what it ends up being. Like you you just exchange, um, oh, right now it escapes me, but you, you can exchange, you know, one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, if you will. You know, so I, I dare say these these groups that are particularly on the fringes of society, right? Even though they're becoming much more vocal, um, even though they're on the fringes, they have so much in common. They only look different, and they use different words, but the sounds are the same. I don't know if you you're aware of a guy called Majid Nawaz. No, no, tell me about it. He's a he's a he's a um, a British Muslim who was. Um, he was an extremist. He, you know, he was a, he was a self-proclaimed terrorist, um, and he spent time in a Egyptian jail, I believe. Um, and he 
subsequently while he was there, he he, he realised that, and, and he believes that he was turned into an extremist by um, vicious skinheads in the 80s in the UK. So extreme right-wing, um, you know, neo-Nazi type characters. So he was turned that way because of that. But he, he subsequently has set up the Quillian Institute, which is a, an institute that tries to... Um, open dialogue and, and bring extremists out of their, their extreme views. I think I'm explaining that correctly, but he's a, he's a really interesting, he's also an LBC, London Broadcasting Corporation um, DJ. So he's a very interesting character. Um, it's funny though, in the, in the, in, in the US, the Pew Institute um, put him on the danger list because he is a danger to, because he, he, he rails against Muslim extremism even though he is a Muslim, but he's on the Pew Institute's list of the most dangerous anti-Muslims in the, in the world, which is a, an interesting fact. Can, you know what? I love that you share that because I want to dive into that for just a moment. So with this young man, right, who became, uh, who became an extremist, who was converted into an extremist, right? With that, what I always say to people is look at anyone who goes to an extreme anything, right? Um, look at a gang member, look at a terrorist, look at look at anyone that, that gets, um, you know, there are a number of, of faiths out there that, that do believe in some alternate ways of living, right? That most of society would not agree with. Look at the similarities that they have. First, they, and, and it's, it's, I liken it also to, um, kids who are bullied and um, kids who like the Columbine bombing that we had here, the things that we've had here. Um, look at the perpetrators of these crimes, right? They all have the same thing in common. Society has let them down in a way. And, and I know this is not a popular view, but if we do look at this analytically without the emotion, we see that society has let them down. And usually it's when they're children. There is neglect that occurred and no one stepped in to fill that gap for them. It could be through a parent, through the education system. But um, data has shown us that by third grade, if a child is not fully engaged, they are more likely to drop out of school, more likely to end up in jail. Now, this is data for the U.S. I'm not sure about other parts of the world, but that is a failure of society. It's a societal failure. And so these kids, when they find someone to say to them, you are worthy, you deserve my attention, and that, that they are already ready for that, right? They're, they're primed for it. Pardon me. But it's, 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 it's ideological grooming. That, yeah, that like anti-grooming or or being pushed into into something from external. Absolutely. What are these kids going to do? It does. Most of them, quite honestly, um, there are so many neo-Nazis that say that they were not raised like, like this. This their parents weren't like this, right? But so how do they become this way? They become this way because there's a gap that's left. There's a void that needs to be filled. Somebody who's a predator fills that, and then because they they crave that attention, they crave that that emotional connection to someone who's almost a parent or a sibling figure to them, they buy into that. And there you have it. And that's how that happens. And so I always say um, it's a societal failure when we see things like that, because yes, the perpetrator is a victim. Um, well, I said, yes, um, the people who got hurt is a victim, are victims, but the perpetrators at some point too were victims that we neglected to help. 
right? And that's not to for sympathy for them, but when they do decide to intentionally make a change in their life to help other people, I dare say that blocking them from entering a country might be less than logical. And, and you know, how does that help anybody, you know? I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I think you've got to look at the whole system. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's, 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 it's not individual interactions that happen right. in a vacuum. Right. You know, the, the influences that we get, I've said I've got, I've got four children and I've read, I think I've, I think I've pretty much got them to five. That's where my, after the age of five, then my influence becomes less and less. It becomes less than 50 because they've got school, they've got peers coming into it. They've got more media um, coming in. They've got their own expansion and evolution of ideas that are based in of all of those those inputs or, or lack of inputs um so we, we have to we have to look at the causation of these these things we can't get the you know if i'm thinking of you know my my language it would be, you know those transactions of, of those negative transactions that are taking place how do we make those more positive well that comes from the systems approach and, and the systems are clearly broken in a lot of they areas. clearly are, and they they do need to be revamped. and And I feel like when we can acknowledge that, right, which is the the great part that we acknowledge that they are broken, right, then we can really take time to analyze them. Like there's something that I created um, at Westbridge called um, the Four A Blueprint, and that um, was based on one of my my quotes that is one of my favorites. Um, Socrates is know thyself. Right. And so I took that approach and I decided to apply that to our programs and our clients uh, when we're customizing something for them. So um, know thyself would refer to um, first creating it, it's a SWOT analysis of yourself internally. But when I'm for individuals and for teams and companies, so we create a SWOT analysis of, of them. And so knowing yourself would first have to do with awareness. Right. Once you are aware, then it leads you to acknowledgement. Once you have acknowledgement, that leads you to um, analysis. And once you have an analysis, that leads you to an action plan. Right. That, those are the stages that we need to go through um, in order to get to our greater goal, whatever that greater goal will be. So if we don't first acknowledge that something is broken, how can we possibly fix it? And this is what I'm seeing now in the United States is that we don't acknowledge that systemic racism is real. And I think because, again, like we were talking about in the green room, people are afraid of being called racist. But acknowledging that racism exists does not mean that somebody is calling you racist or that you're acknowledging racism from your your own heart. It's just, it's a system that is put into play. We all lose. Thomas Jefferson once said, um, the slave... Slavery demeans both the slave master and the slave, right? Two different degrees, of course, but as a society, right, it harms us all, right? Just racism does, you know, and and I dare say um, we are so much better than that. Because if you think about individual relationships, right, think about how much fun we're having in the green room, right? Think about our conversations outside of here, right? I, I just think, look at all the potential there is for friendships to be established. But does that mean that we have to deny that colonialism existed and it had, it has had a continued effect upon our world, right? In a very negative way. We're not saying that didn't happen. 
And we, we have to acknowledge how it's broken society, but that doesn't mean that our interpersonal relationships are broken. By acknowledging that such a thing exists, we can actually strengthen our interpersonal relationships. Definitely. Um, I, and what I do, we, we, we help companies identify pain points. And I'm, I'm a strong believer that what I do is I, I, I do exactly what you do with different language, really. We, what, what we do is we help human-to-human relationships. And I believe that businesses really are human-to-human in nature, whether they're B2B or B2C. It's still a human-to-human interaction. And then you've got all the employee interactions that are human-to-human interactions inside of it. Um, so if we, what, what I do with the clients, so let's find the pain points. For me, it's in the customer journey or in the engagement side of things. Because if we can understand what's causing the major issues, we can then do something about it. Um, Approaching it with a learning mentality instead of a blaming mentality. Let's let's go a little bit into the global fluency, because that's important, I think. How How do we encourage that when there is a division of being put into our boxes and being categorized by by our demographics, which I fundamentally disagree with. I don't think demographics is actually a very good way of um, you know, the, the color of our skin, the, the race that we're from is a demographic, but the similarities are more around our interests. Like we both love football. We're talking about sport. Now that's a, that's a far, far more meaningful commonality between us. Well, I'm going to give you a little pushback on that one. I do think our commonalities are very important, right? Very important. Like when people see me, um, I appear to be a a black woman, right? But um, I identify myself as a Caribbean woman, as a black woman, as a Latin woman, right? That has to do with my culture, geography, and my ethnicity, uh, my nationality that of an American, right? But I'm also the child of immigrants. I'm also an American that didn't speak English until the age of five. You know, um, I am also somebody that that loved to ride motorcycles. I, I played classic violin for five years, but I loved heavy metal. Um, you know, there's, but when you see me, you'll never know that unless you have a conversation with me. Um, people have assumed things like, people literally said to me, wow, you must have so much rhythm. I have two left feet. My husband <laughs> has to dance. I just like to be on the dance floor and that's very different from knowing how to dance, right? So I, I think that our differences are important. So when people say, um, and this drives me nuts, Brenton, when people say, I don't see color, I say to them, what's wrong with color? There's nothing wrong with color. It's the judgment that we place upon any particular color, that would be the problem, right? Because I love the skin I'm in. I love the skin that you're in. I love the skin that, you know, our neighbors are in. It's important to have these differences. And the only time they won't matter is when we we can all have a truly level playing field. And by that, I mean equity, right? Because we have equality per se, but equity is what's important and and truly an inclusive experience. So if you and I are, um, who says this? Verna Myers says that she's the vice president of Netflix, but prior to that, she was an attorney and an advocate of diversity and inclusion. And she said, diversity is being invited to the party. Um, Inclusion is being asked to dance, 
right? And so for me, again, with the two left feet, but loves music, <laughs> you know, I always want to be asked to dance or, or I want to ask someone to dance. I want to invite them to have the same experience as I do. And then it goes further. Um, and Verna did not add this part, but then belonging is not caring what you look like when you dance, right? Because then you're your authentic self. Right. How anyone who really knows me knows I'm having a good time, um, let's say at a wedding or something, is that I'm dancing like I discovered dancing. Right. <laughs> Didn't care, you know, and, and that's how I enjoy being because it's the easiest way for me to be. Now, when we're guarded, that's harder to do. Right. Because it's it's a facade that we have to put on and we, we all have our facades. But I dare say you know, we do have more in common, but I want us to, to embrace those differences. So with regard to global fluency, um, the heart of it all is having uncomfortable conversations, seeking them out, right? Because those are the most fun ones. Like who wants to be around yes people all day besides our current president here in the US, but <laughs> that was a political dig, sorry. I well, right. as, as an adjunct professor and me not being one of your students, so you can share a little bit of your opinion. And let's pretend no 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 future student might be listening. Um, exactly. what's, what's your what's your what's your take on what's going on in the USA at the moment? Your 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 home because from from the outside we're all a little bit worried for you. Oh right, <laughs> you know if it weren't so sad it, it would almost be funny that we are in this position um because i grew up with america being um not the sole superpower because at the time the former soviet uh republic was uh, the other superpower but for most of my life the united states has been a leader um and so living in the united states um People come here for a reason, right? Because um, in one generation, um, you can become so much more than the previous generation insofar as having more material wealth, more, more opportunities for career advancement, especially if you are you know, a woman from a marginalized country um, that, that cannot move further without the, the binds of marriage, right? And I said binds, not bonds, <laughs> because sometimes it is that, right? Um, so having said that, you know, being born here is a great thing for me. Uh, but also being the child of immigrants, um, I, I do take umbrage with people saying America is the greatest country in the world. I find that people that say that have never been outside of America, right? Um, I love Haiti. I love it so much. Um, it is the the country of my parents' birth. It is my ancestral home. But America is where I live. It's my heart. But um, you can have two loves for different reasons, right? And so um, I always think, you know, people have one version of Haiti that they see on CNN, and that version is just completely just not there. There does exist dire poverty, but there's another part of Haiti as well. And that that's problematic that there are two separate Hades in that sense. But there's another part that is breathtaking that that honestly people who don't have to leave there do not, right? And there's a reason that people like myself and my friends, we go back to visit, you know? It, it, is, it is like no other place in the world to me. And I'm a world traveler. And my husband is a world traveler. And our son has been on a plane since he's been an infant as well. And we did that with intentionality because um, even before the book came out, uh, I knew global fluency in my heart and what I needed it to be in my personal life before it ever evolved into my professional life. So 
I, I seek to have uncomfortable conversations. I seek to learn um, how to speak other languages. I am, I'm, uh, uh-oh, I forgot the word to describe what I am. I am um, a polyglot. polyglot. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. So I speak four languages and- Wow, which, which four? Um, English, French, Haitian Creole, and Spanish. So, you know, and in our family, like nobody thinks it's a big deal. Thank you. See, I have to go outside of my family to get some props for that because I do think <laughs> that's something, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, one of my uncles speaks seven and he thinks the rest of us are lazy. And I just say to myself, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to be called that then um, by him. Um, but um, I think it's important when we visit other countries to have an open mind, try different foods, um, try stuff that you might not like. I, I mean, honestly, I think that's the best way to embrace another culture and show them that you're willing to try something. Now, you might not like it afterwards, and that's fine. But if you never try and you're like, no, that's gross, right? That's disgusting. How do you know that? You might end up liking it. I mean, I, I, I remember I once went to Mexico with my family and um, a friend of mine, she's from, she's from Guatemala and she had shown me a picture of her eating crickets once. And I was like, that's different. And when I got to Mexico, crickets were on the menu. And I said, you know what, let me go all the way in for that. And I had a bowl of crickets. It was delicious. And they are delicious, aren't they? They, they are, are delicious. so good. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love this. And I remember I took a picture and I sent it to her and I posted it on my social media. And, you know, she was so happy, you know, and it was like a hug from afar. Right. But yet other people were just like, oh, how can you eat that? And I'm like, you know, they're actually healthy for you. They're delicious. Give it a shot, right? It's something as simple as that. It's something as simple as learning to say hello to someone. If you can say hello and thank you to someone in their native language, right? As Nelson Mandela said, when you speak to a man in a language, um, he understands you speak to his intellect, but when you speak to him in his native language, you speak to his heart, right? So I think little steps are all that's necessary, but they need to make us uncomfortable. These steps are, as we were talking about prior, right? Um, moving from our ancient brains where we're programmed to for stereotypes and things that are patterned, um, th that was, there was a reason for those primitive um, ways of ours, you know, mentally, socially. It was to keep us safe from harm. So a lot of times we we deflect to or we fall back upon our primitive brains because our primitive brains were created for a very specific reason. It was to protect us from harm and to keep us safe. And that primitive brain loves to form patterns. And that's how we get generalizations and stereotypes. But our modern brains push us to be inquisitive, to explore. And this is where we get the biggest payback from from learning this is this is how our brains grow actually when we push them towards using that modern brain that makes us uncomfortable so the more your brain learns it's it's um it's a computer that stores information but also learns to process that information very quickly when that event happens again so that's probably why you know if we bump into a wall once we don't bump into that same wall again but now we have to make sure to not bump into you know, the next wall. So having said that, it's super important for us to continuously and intentionally push ourselves outside of those comfort zones. Because quite honestly, too, those comfort zones are are boring. They can become mundane very easily. And while I'm a creature of habit insofar as, you know, certain things I like to do in life, I'm also one that seeks adventure. And that could be adventure 
insofar as conversation, um, differences of thought, political beliefs. Um, I There's no conversation I like as much as someone who completely disagrees with me. And because I'm interested and I want to see why they feel the way they do. When, when you're talking, I, my brain is going off into so many different tangents. Love um, it. <laughs> so, um, and, and by the way, just to let you know, we had a technology, for the listeners, we had a te- uh, technology failure um, halfway through a question. So we're kind of splicing these together. And um, um, yeah, I, I've lost my place now as well. So let's, let's get back to that. Um, how do people, like you and, you and I like to travel or have loved to travel, we live in a COVID-19 impacted world where travel and collecting and, and, and you know, exercising our global fluency muscle, if you will, is far more difficult now. How do we keep promoting that global fluency? Like I, w- I would suggest that now that with the, with the with the drop of borders that we talked about in the green room, um, that you and I uh, are more likely to be having conversations overseas. Should be should all companies be embracing this um, lack of borders, this Zoom cyberspace world where we can travel to the, I can travel to Atlanta today to have a conversation Absolutely. with you, and I can still pick my kids up this afternoon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. No clock borders. No, no physical borders. Absolutely. First, I will say this. um, The pandemic as it stands, although it is a traumatic experience because globally we're all experiencing a collective trauma. Right. Um, And all that that brings with it, uh, the PTSD, uh, the depression, the mental anxiety, the being at home, the quarantining, the, you know, the, the rage baking. Right. I mean, whatever it is that people are going through, not to make light of it at all. It's it's serious, but it does not have to be the end of our world. If anything, um, it can be the beginning of something better. And while I do mourn the tragic loss of life and really hope that we are able to get out of this at some point, um, I do see this as a time to continue to grow and evolve. Um, I love Netflix and I love watching Netflix movies just as much as the next person. But I think right now to when I hear people telling me, especially in the beginning, because I think people were coping and adjusting, that um, they were so bored. I honestly had no idea what they were talking about because I saw it as a time to get busy, to start pivoting, um, to start to expand my reach. And by that, I mean not only, you know, the guests that I had on my podcast, but now it was time for me to start being on other people's podcasts and figuring out where they were and and creating new relationships. And and this way, in this very real way, I've been able to not only establish new relationships and friendships, right, such as with the fabulous producer and you, Brenton, but with so many people around the world, right? With and, and also too locally, I've been able to keep in touch and grow um, relationships and have other tribes as well. Um, because all of it's been through through social, not social media, but all of it's been through virtual platforms such as Zoom, such as, you know, so many other things. I've been able to um, participate in in summits, book launches. During the pandemic alone, um, this month I'm launching two books and one of them just made wow. an yeah, yeah. We just made for one of them Amazon's um, number one bestseller for the day. So that was awesome. You know, and tell the listeners about the book. Oh, 
Thank you. It's called Courageous Enough to Launch, and it is an anthology. I am one of 47 co-authors, and uh, it's available on Amazon. Dr. Cheryl Wood is the visionary behind this project, and she has had 12 prior number one anthologies. So for me to have been included in this wonderful work, it's about um, women who have launched their their entrepreneurial journeys despite um, fears and challenges. And, and that's where I talk about the 4A blueprint that I mentioned earlier. Um, so it just went to um, Amazon's number one bestseller um, earlier this week. We wrapped up, what today is Monday here. So last week, um, we just wrapped up uh, the, the virtual book launch, which I didn't even think was a thing that could be done, but yet here it is. Um, I'm preparing for our annual summit at, Reg at Westbridge called the Global Fluency Summit. Um, and that's taking place on a vir virtual platform, which I've never done before. And so um, that's going to be amazing. It's going to be a two-day summit starting this week. So naturally, I'm really glad right now that we are not on TV. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are getting from me is messy hair and chapstick today. Oh, so, you look great. I don't know, listen, she looks great. Absolutely. I look exactly like both of them right now, too. So <laughs> you would think if I just have my glasses on, you guys would just all think we look alike. <laughs> right? <laughs> but but having said that, you know, um, these are the things that were thought to be impossible. And then Global Fluency 2, um, the, the second component of the first Global Fluency book, comes out this month as well. So what I've learned is, there is nothing that can stop me except my own limiting beliefs, right? Um, because really and truly, you have four kids and you are making it work. I have a young son. I'm making it work. We're making it work because we took the bold decision to pivot. We took the bold decision that we were going to continue to grow and evolve. And just like when a lobster grows, it's painful because they have to shift. In. And this is as society must grow. We have to shed these old beliefs, these limiting beliefs about what we can do and start embracing the possibilities of what can actually be done if we push ourselves enough. And this is, this is, I would say, um, related to the work that you do, the work that I do, right? Um, we want to explore those pain points because it's scary to go out there. I was painfully shy growing up. And I mean, if you even thought I had a voice, you, you'd be shocked to hear me speak, right? I was that way with everyone except for my family. But then I realized, um, even in the work that I do, um, when I first started teaching diversity, equity, and inclusion, I had a very tapered hair, right? My haircut was more like yours than it was like this today, right? And I was super short and just very conservative. And, you know, one of my, um, one, a member of my sales team had said to me, she was just like, if you're teaching diversity and the, you know, the ability to embrace yourself and all this, why do you still have that old picture of you on your website? And we only recently changed it. And she was like, I want to see you with your blonde, big hair and, you know, you being you and ditch the corporate suit. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I, because that's when people see me in person when I train, that's what I look like. I look like my authentic self. And so I thought, I, I don't want them to just be shocked when they see me because they need to understand differences coming their way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I've been reading quite a lot. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the book. I listen. I listen to audiobooks these days. I, I tend not to read books. Right. So I, not related. <laughs> I know. We probably. We're 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 um definitely the the the, the similarities are crazy. Self limiting beliefs. You touched on that. Now I'm I'm a big fan of principles proper principles like my background science and mm -hmm. and when I find a principle I love to test where it can be applied 
because a true principle should be able to be applied at all scales, if you're thinking scientifically. And self-limiting beliefs are one of those principles that we could all relate to. Like, I, I see that what you help is companies and individuals within organizations get rid of their self-limiting beliefs about others and challenge those self-beliefs. We're talking about it from a personal development point of view as well, which is where you were going. And, and that's certainly, I, I hear some ridiculous self-limiting beliefs about customers um, that people have. So um, what, are, what other principles do you think are so important to you and, and what you do? That, 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 or, or, or it's pretty much everything, isn't it? We, bit it, we do the same thing. It's just different language. We really do. Um, I will say this, though, with regard to those self-limiting beliefs, as, as you describe them, they, as the principles, I should say, as you describe them, um, I also apply that to politics, right? The Constitution is a principle, right? The American Constitution, I should clarify for other people. It's a principle. So I do like to bend it as far as I can. And I always tell my students, the Constitution is a living, breathing document. It can be bent, but not broken, right? And so how else are we going to bend it if we don't push the limits to test how good it actually is? So I think even with um, diversity and, and, and inclusion training, I, I believe in the principle of respect, right? I walk in the room knowing that I'm establishing myself as the alpha in the room. However, um, I can't be the alpha if I don't give that respect as well, right? So it has to be something that is definitely bendable, right? But it cannot be broken. And so having said that, I have trained people that you walk into a room and because they've been they've been conditioned to see diversity trainings as punitive. Um, I knew I had to change like my entire perspective of diversity. And so that's why Westbridge is so very different. Um, we train in a way that's innovative and we, we deviate willingly <laughs> and, and most ferociously from the traditional paradigm of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. Um, we don't believe in reactive measures. We don't believe in ticking off a box. I tell people all the time, if you want me to come to your organization or, or now deliver one virtually um, as a training, that's not a 30-minute speech on how we should all be friends. That's not actually how the process is successful. And having taken diversity trainings across the United States and bringing them back to um, my home state of Georgia, um, I saw why they failed. And so basically those processes were broken and I sought to create something better than what I was taught with. And, and that's always how I work. First, I, I see where there is a gap because gaps create problems. Nature um, or a vacuum, right? And so gaps create problems. And I say, okay, how can I fill that gap? But how can I make it so that it's stronger than it was before? That's what I seek to do with teams and organizations. We want to make them stronger than they were before. And again, going back to how we operate, that can be a skills gap, that can be a cultural gap, it can be a combination of both. So I think when you have that principle of first um, deviating from the norm, because it's, it's boring to be just another square that fits in a square peg, right? Gosh, um, yes. I was I was a little girl who 
my mom loved dressing me up in, in these pretty little dresses, but I was a tomboy. And so she was forward thinking enough where she let me have an incredible Hulk lunchbox. So here I was, you know, walking around in a pink dress with my Hulk lunchbox. And, and my mom was so forward thinking in that sense. And I'm, I'll always be forever grateful to her because this was who I was born to be. And I realized that, you know, there are other people out there who need to be seen for their authentic selves. Let's create space for them. Right. There's nothing wrong with being a traditionalist because they, too, are getting the short end of the stick, if you will. I, I think there's room in our society for many different mindsets, many different types of people, um, and we have to create space for them. And one of the things that we talk about is white men serving as allies. Right. Because they think, at least here in the United States, my experience has been that a certain age group of white men, in particular corporate white men, think that they don't have a voice. Right. Or feel back to what we were saying about Me Too. I liken it to this only because um, we're looking at a group that has had a lot of power now feeling disenfranchised and powerless. Right. And so my ascension doesn't have to mean your dissension. Right. Why can't we be in the same space and, and kind of, you know, if we're going to take it to a scientific level, why can't we be atoms? circulating around a nucleus, right? Did I say that correctly, I think? Uh, <laughs> electron, um, electrons and protons, protons. Thank you, because um, I'm like, you know, make an atom, but, <laughs> but why can't we be <laughs> yeah, electrons, know you, you know, circling around a nucleus? It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And so I, I also say um, it's really important that when we look at at leaders of uh, diversity and inclusion, um, like Malcolm, Malcolm, I was going to say Malcolm X, but um, if you look specifically at Martin Luther King, for instance, right, mm -hmm. I value Malcolm X greatly for other reasons. But for this purpose of this conversation, when you look at Martin Luther King, he didn't surround himself with only Black people for the civil rights movement. He surrounded himself with Black men, Black women, white men, white women, Jewish people, Muslim, and Christians, right? Because for any society, for any group of people to advance in a society, it requires allyship from people who do not look like them, who do not think like them, who do not, you know, worship the same God as them. So it's really important, the role that we play for each other. Definitely. It's, it's funny, I, we were taught about William Wilberforce at school when I was back in the UK, who was a white ally who um, railed against um, the slave trade. Um, and was without without that white ally, it would have it potentially taken a lot longer. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and you see this now in politics here in the United States, because quite honestly, Joe Biden would not be in the position that he is right now without the support of Black Americans, like and particularly Black female Americans. And so allyship comes in many different forms. It it comes in, you know, creating spaces for neurodiversity. Um, as I mentioned to um, Phil some time ago, my son is this brilliant, mischievous 11-year-old who happens to be on the autism spectrum. And when people hear autism, they automatically think someone who's less intelligent, when in reality, he's quite the opposite, right? But unless we're willing to ask questions, right, that's where it's up to me to create a safe space for someone who doesn't know him or me to ask a question, because if I get offended, um, one of our neighbors here, when she first learned of his autism, she was just like, he doesn't look autistic. And I 
I could have had two roads I could have traveled. I could have said, well, what do you mean by that, right? But I know that path is not the one that I have chosen in life. And that doesn't mean it's easier, but I, I knew she meant well. And I said, well, what does that look like, right? So she can, I wanted to give her a chance to be introspective. There is no need to shame her. And, and because, you know, I thought my brain was so big, right? No, there's no need for that. But when you ask, then somebody is able to walk themselves through their own process and they meet you where you are. And and she adores him, you know, and she's and he's this brilliant little boy, you know, but it's important that I am this way for him and for other children like him, you know, and and I say that he's changed my entire worldview. So he's actually made me a better human, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. Oh, don't kids do that though? I mean they I are awful little creatures. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice, selfish world, and then he showed up, and now he's making it all awesome. And you know, mine is asking for dinner all the time. Like, what are you going to cook for me? I know they, they don't do very much. That's the the one thing, isn't it? Just sit there. They don't pay rent. They just sit there. But uh, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have a world without my kids. That's for sure. I'm telling you. Um, yeah. I think I sleep more, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got we've got a um, a six almost six month old. And um, I'm back at the age of 46. I'm 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 discovering the pain of broken sleep. Um, like six months of broken sleep, it's starting to get. We've got very very lovely um, in-laws though, and relatives who often um, give us a night off. You know, every few weeks we get a night off. But it, it is um, apart from the sleep, absolutely awesome. That's brilliant. Sure. Uh, moving up, what what with what little time we've got left. Um, and I'm sure we're going to continue this conversation again. And I know that we're, we've got another conversation actually later in the week, but yes, I can't we wait for that. Um, you've got the how to do this. And I, I, I've, I think I've got the how for CX. Like if people want to improve and, and realise the value of, C, of um, what engaging with customers um, can provide their company. But my challenge often, I think, and over the last two and a half years, is making it clear or clarifying or realizing in um, potential clients mind what the why is mm. oh so so how do you do that because you and I have, have similar mindsets we embrace diversity we have that that global outlook um, we see and um, uh, value diversity um, but we think the commonalities matter so with all of that in mind we're we naturally led to this type of you know human to hu human interaction work. How do you get the the people who aren't leaning that way in their thinking necessarily? Maybe you know in a if we if we want to use a a catch-all term that's that's a terrible derogatory term, but you know the psychopaths in charge of business. How do right. we get how do we get them to understand that there's a really solid why to this that does even if all they care about is the bottom line well then it's going to affect the bottom line positively right and you just answer that so the why is okay so i'm going to backtrack how the why is really important right because the how matters why is is the catalyst that gets them to embrace our how right so i always say you have to speak to someone in their language and by their language um one of the things that that we train people on 
is is something called five voices, right? And by that, it's I want to say it's similar to a disk assessment. Um, and for those that might not be familiar, but I, I'm sure like your audience has to be because of the nature of the work that you do. So it's similar to a disk assessment, which measures your personality and your responses and how you are. It goes even deeper than that. And so I, that's why I made it an integral part of how we train people um, and how we help transform their views. Um, it's placing the onus on us, the individual, right? It's, it's on me to learn how you speak, what your voice is, right? What's, so let's say if I am speaking to the psychopath, right? Not Brenton, everyone, but yeah. let's say the <laughs> <charge>, right? <laughs> if I am, I need to learn what makes them tick. I need to, because the message that I'm giving them, the way I'm delivering it may not be how they're receiving it, right? So I need to learn, it's just as important for me to learn how they're receiving it as to how I'm delivering it, right? So that's the first thing. Because once I learn how they hear something, then I'll know how to craft that message for them that will speak to their hearts and minds because that's what it's about winning. Right. I have to get their buy in and by buy in their emotional buy in, because that's how we make every decision. Whether you're the CEO of the company or you are the, the sales clerk, we make decisions based on emotions. Right. Yeah. We're yeah. rational beings. Completely. But then I need to learn what speaks to the heart of that person and how they're going to process what I'm saying to them. Um, because I could easily, I tend to be a sarcastic person. Um, and I like, we play a lot of pranks Never. here. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, it's it's fun for me when somebody is able to, and, and I always talk about this guy, my husband, he's amazing, because he's got this rapier wit that really just, I love the sparring that we get to have and it's good natured, but it's, it's harsh, you know, but it's, it's fun for us because we know we love each other. Right. And because we know each other's voices. And so um, I, I say the same thing about teams because that's what marriage is. It's a team. If the corporation is marriage, then the team, you know, this person's in this department, this person's in that department and we all work for the same company. Right. Basically our kids, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they're all different. They're all different. You've got four bosses, okay? That's what's happening. And so how do how do we make it so that they see this buy-in? It's the the what's in it for me, right? The W-I-I-F-M, right? So I want I want them to see what's in it for them, but I want to deliver it in a way that makes sense to them, where they're not going to feel threatened. And by threatened, I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally, because that is that is the crux of the matter, right? If they feel emotionally threatened, then they're automatically going to shut down. If they feel as if I'm dismissive, they're going to shut down, right? But I cannot give away my power either. So it's not about giving away power. It's about how some, learning how somebody else is going to react to things by learning their voice. And so that, that to me, when I learned this, I knew I had to make it a part of what and how I taught other people because that's how you win hearts and minds. And hearts and minds are what make decisions. Hearts and minds are what make purchases. Hearts and minds are what hire people. You know, it's, you can have two candidates that are, that are the same on a resume, but then when you meet them and one captures you and they're literally capturing your heart and mind. Right. And, and that's why sometimes um, it's not somebody that's from the A team 
that gets hired might be that B team person because they're charismatic. They, they know how to respond to that person's voice. And you can be your authentic self when you do this, right? But it's about people relationship. And, and again, the customer experience, that's a people relationship. That's a heart and mind relationship, right? So, so that's how I think we get them to see the why. We learn how they hear things and how they respond to things. And we speak to them in a way that's going to be respectful of that. Yeah, full agreement with that. Full agreement. We in the in the CX space, um, we we we've we look at all the we've we've got a model called the human experience model at Halftime Orange, and what it does is it we would we were working on our why in our first year about you know what's read that famous Simon Sinek book and was thinking about the why, and my why was to help employees and customers inside and outside organisations. It's like. Yeah, but there's other humans involved in this organization. There's all these other segments, like the managers are a different segment to the employees. The customers are a different segment to the non-customers. The leader experience is really important. You know, without without that. So so we started looking at the, I guess, for, for a simplistic view, the happiness quotient in each of those different segments. Because the idea is everybody within an ecosystem is having their outcomes provided for you know with the shareholders they want their pound of flesh and that's 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 what their successful outcome but some some of those shareholders want their company to be a legacy company or they want it to do well in the world so to understand what those individual segments and as you say individual people within an organization again it's that principle that's uh, applicable at, at all of those levels Sorry, before um, before we finish, because I know we are we're, we're well over time. Now, we talk for we are going to talk for hours anyway. Um, <laughs> but one thing I always like to um, ask my guests is: You're a customer. You have things that you love. Um, would you care to share your very best customer or one of the best customer experiences that you've currently been enjoying, or you've enjoyed over the last few months or year? Absolutely. I will even, and, and this is what's interesting about this customer experience. Um, I don't necessarily agree with some of their policies, but their customer service is bar none. So I'm not going to give them a plug because I think they still have some work to do. But with regard to the customer experience, there is a particular fast food place <laughs> here. And every time I go there, they say to me, it's a pleasure to serve you. And it just always feels great. Mind you, um, the calories and the sodium, <laughs> horrible, right? Yeah. But yeah. It, so I don't go too often. But when I do go, I leave feeling great, right? And, and I'll even say this. Um, there's another, there's a, we have a line of supermarkets here called Publix. And they're in the southern part of the United States where I am. And they will... When you ask them for something, and this is why I love going to Publix. So when you ask them for something, you know, um, where can I find this particular cheese? They drop what they're doing. You can be 10 aisles away. They walk you there. And I'm just like, you can tell me I'll go. <laughs> and now I'm so used to it. It's like concierge service. So they walk you there. They find it for you. And they're like, is there anything else? And the great part is as you walk in, they greet you. If you need something while you're shopping, 
they they walk you there and find it for you. If they can't find it, they will call another department where they'll have someone assist you to the point where I'm like, it's just cheese, I'll be okay. But you know, <laughs> and now I'm like, they've invested so much time. It's this whole emotional roller coaster where I'm like, okay, I don't wanna, <laughs> I don't want them to stop now. But then as they're bagging your groceries, um, and, and this I always have a good time at the grocery store. Um my mom was this way too, but um, it's an experience. And so, you know, you go in there and the cashiers are talking to you. I do believe in, I do believe the customer service is both ways, right? And so um, I always want to, you know, say, how is your day going? Especially during the pandemic, I find that basic etiquette has disappeared and, and I'm not a fan of that. And I do not encourage that. We can still be kind and nice through mask. It's free. People see you when your eyes are smiling. But then, you know, they doesn't matter if you have one little bag or 20 bags, they offer to walk you to your car. And from the moment you come in until the moment you leave, it is they're curating your experience at the grocery store. Right. So for someone like me who who always has had great interactions at the grocery store. I've made friends at the grocery store. Um, so when I walk in there, you know, um, particularly if you frequent one, you know, you see people that you know, you, you ask about their families. And, you know, especially at times like this, it, it's a good thing, right? It's a sense of community. So Publix, yes, I will plug them because their customer service is like nothing else I've ever encountered. And And I think if more people behave that way, right? Because they can be having bad days. These are essential workers who are putting their lives at risk, who do not make a lot of money. And what's ironic is sometimes um, I'll see some of my students who work there as well. And, you know, I tease them about their grades. I'm like, if you don't bag my groceries properly, you're getting an F. But, you know, but it's like, it's it's just a wonderful experience from start to finish. And, and for me as a customer, um, they're more expensive, but that's what keeps me going back. There you go. Customer service is one of the most important things, even in the in the non-named um, example that you gave before. You can see it rescues what you've freely admitted is probably a less than delightful customer experience end to end. But that really personalized and, and friendly customer service rescues that to to promote it into a into into an area where perhaps they wouldn't be if it was just purely based on the the actual experience in store but but publics there you go if we 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 grade um there's this wonderful way of looking at customer experience it's a really simple six stage process so there's six things called the cx6 that make up um good customer experience and the first three Fast, easy, convenient. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you think if you're looking for cheese, you've got, you, they're, they're providing it in the fastest way, the most convenient and the easiest way, by taking you straight there. They're not making you wait. So, uh, yeah, and they're trackable, they're personalised, and, um, and they're predictable. You know it's going to be the same every time you go into Publix. And that's, that's that primitive brain that's getting fed, right? That's this, which is so good. So it's all... They're also... They've also made it a lot more difficult for any of their competitors for you. If you go to a, you go somewhere else, you've now got an expectation level of customer service that other companies will find it very difficult to compete with. Well, to 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 even take that one one step further, we have a grocery store that's right near us, and I drive further to go to the Publix unless we really need like bread, you know. 
I'll run in there, but I know that no one will say good morning. Um, you know, if you ask for help, now they've started to try to adopt that because I think they're seeing the competition, but it's still not the same. It's still not the same. And I dare say, I don't know that it will be the same because publics just, they're just so good at it, especially now during a pandemic where I think, you know, people can use a dose of kindness, right? Um, because it, it not everybody's going to get that from, you know, their personal life or their... their because of that very reason, it's more important that we're nicer to our customers. Yeah, absolutely. So in that, what's going to happen is even after the pandemic has, has you know, subsided, which is my hope that it's very soon, um, sooner than later, um, publics will have essentially had me as a customer for life because of how they treated me in that moment. Um, and, and that's why I think at least from Westbridge perspective, um, over-delivering is what I always intend to do with my customers, right? Um, and and we call them our clients, of course, but at the end of the day, they're our partners, right? They're our partners because they help support our company. And so, you know, I I know what that means. So the person that, that gets our introductory program gets the same treatment as the person that gets our VIP program. Now, it's not the same level of service, but it is the same treatment, right? And so, you know, we do try to over-deliver for everything and everyone that we do. So that person leaves feeling like, wow, you know, and if I can share a story very quickly, um, I promise I'll be brief. <laughs> but so the other day, someone called me, um, because they were looking for a particular course to take and they had, they couldn't find, they called me, but one, it's a university that was one of my clients. So somebody wanted to take a course from that university and we had um, created a course for them that they've yet to release. Um, the pandemic has pushed everything back for on their end. And so the person didn't receive much information from, you know, the powers that be there. And so they they saw that I had created the program, so they called me. And I had a, a conversation with them about what their needs are, like what is their pain point, as you said, Brenton, right? What their needs are, what they're trying to accomplish. And I gave them some free resources that they can look at before investing their treasure and their time. I think it's really important. Now, this person isn't going to be a client of mine right? Not at all. But it's important for me to provide help to someone because I have that knowledge that can help them. So why should they waste their time? And also, um, they were going, they're a military spouse. And so, you know, especially during a time such as this, um, they're trying to just get an education and make sure their, their, you know, financial aid papers are in order. And, you know, it, I was a bit disappointed that the university hadn't given them more information um, because they didn't have to go through all that back and forth. But I was like, well, here I am. Um, I can send you to some resources. First, see about that. And if and you don't have to do this step, but you do have to do that step. And then it should be fine. And if you have any other questions, please feel free to call me. And that person was so you could hear the sigh of relief, you know, from their shoulders. And for me, it, it's a two way street when you give a good customer experience you feel good and you know that Definitely. right you stuck to the standards of your company and so now i know that that person they're going to leave feeling better but also empowered with information and so i stuck to our motto empowering professionals for success you know and and i know that they'll always think well of westbridge right um that's not why i told them that information but that's just what's going to naturally happen so in that sense I enjoyed being able to give them a good customer experience, even though they're not my client. 
it's so important to, for, for that term. You talk about how enjoyable it is on both sides. There isn't, I mean, there's an exchange of, there's actually an exchange of dopamine going on. You know, we, we, we live to do two things, um, people like us, I think. One, we want to, of course, we want to we wanna educate, but we want to help as well. So if the opportunity comes, we all, I think also the, 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 I guess, to describe it as the karmic nature of that type of work as well. It does come back if you're constantly trying to offer insightful assistance, then um, then it, it it comes back tenfold. Um, it, as I'm and I feel that we're in our in our professional and personal senses, right? We're nurturers, but we're creative, right? And and that is a balance that I don't think you see very often, or I don't think that's considered very often when you're talking about the customer experience that needs to be considered, right? We can nurture, you know, our clients, our customers, you know, while we're creating for them. It doesn't have to be transactional. And and for me, when it becomes transactional is when I feel that, you know, someone is taking advantage of me or, and I'm like, fine, I will fulfill my commitment, but I don't like that. And so I try to avoid that as much as possible because this end of it, I want to serve my clients. You know, I want to have a great, relationship and partnership with them. I want them to love their experience. Um, so we've had to actually say no to some potential clients because I knew that that would not bring me joy. Right. I, I, that's one of the benefits of working for yourself, right, as well. Yeah, it's not the best business model. But no. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's 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 uh, eight billion people that you can talk to, so a bit of self selection may be um, may be a good thing. There's only so many hours in the day. Um, if people wanted to experience your wonderful customer experience, um, if they they were listening to this and they they the the why was resonating and the how was uh, can't be anything but interesting, I think to people. Um, what would be the best way for them to to reach out to you or begin engaging with you in Westbridge? Oh, well, thank you for this opportunity. Well, um, first, they could visit our website at www.westgrouptraining.com. And they can also reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Bertine Crevacore West. And I'm sure Brenton will have it in the show notes. We'll, <laughs> and- we'll put all of this in the show notes as well. Yeah. And we'll put a link. I was going to say we should put a link to your anthology. Oh yes, as well. um, yeah. and to your, and as soon as your 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 next when's your second book due for publication? Uh, the second book out of these two, I mean. Yeah, the yeah. second book as the fifth book, but it's it's due for publication in about two days. <laughs> so okay, so by the time this goes out, it'll definitely be out. For sure, for sure. So we'll include and a link to that, that as well. They can find that at Westbridge as well. And if I may, I'd love to share the Global Fluency Summit link with them in case they're interested in that. Thank you. It's uh, www.globalfluencysummit.com. And it is a virtual summit. We're having a live two-day event um, this Friday and Saturday, October 2nd and 3rd. But then we will have um, the recording available for an additional month. So I'm looking forward to all of that. Cool. So we'll probably be for the recording because um, it'll take us. Uh, we'll probably publish this next week. But um, yeah, I'd I'd encourage all listeners to to check that out. I'm going to be um, signing up to it as well, oh. um, so that I can I can keep dipping in when I've got gaps in the day. So I'd love to love to um, be, be exposed to that. Um, 
I realise the time, so I'm going to say goodbye for now. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for um, really stimulating conversation. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to talk to you next time. So so thanks, thanks Bettine. Thank you so much for having me. This has been truly, truly a pleasure. Cool. Wonderful. Thanks. You go well. Let's stay safe. Thank you, too. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening today. I hope you got some really solid value out of the conversation. If you did get some value, please consider subscribing using any of the links below. We are on all major podcast platforms. And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or via our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you next time.